you can get your Bibles and go with me to uh, the book of Mark, Mark chapter 6. And uh, last week I had intended to bring this message and then uh, the windstorm kind of messed things up and so we did not meet as a church. I got to say it was great to uh, join Harvest Lancaster online, but man, I missed seeing you guys. And so because I missed last week, I kind of thought about it like that should give me the right to preach you know, twice as long this week, just go ahead and take two weeks into one. I am not going to do that today. And all God's people said. All right, so while you're there, Mark chapter 6, I just want to ask you a question. Have you ever sat through a sales pitch? Anybody sat through a sales pitch? You know where, uh, I don't know if it was something, maybe you were trying to buy something in person. Maybe you were in a store. Maybe you were trying to do it over a phone. Maybe you were trying to buy a car. You got sucked into one of those timeshare deals. But inevitably, when you're talking to somebody who's trying to sell you something, they're telling you about how great this thing is. And, and, and they tell you about the features and the benefits and, and how this is going to change your life. And you can't live without it. It's so awesome. You got to buy this. And, but what's the one question that you're really wondering the whole time? You're like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know it's great, but how much does it? How much does it cost? Do you know that following Jesus is worth it? I want to remind you of that today, but if we're going to be honest with ourselves, there is a cost. Sometimes it can cost a lot. Mark tells us, he's trying to answer these questions. Who, who is this person, Jesus, and then what does it mean to be his disciple? And today, he's going to tell us, following Jesus is not all puppies and rainbows, okay? It, it, this is Mark chapter 6, is kind of the warning, warning, it's about to get real here. It's time to put on your big boy pants and realize that discipleship is not for the faint of heart. This is not going to be easy, and don't be surprised when it's a lot harder than you thought it was going to be. You ever signed up for something and then realized it was a lot harder than you were expecting? Anybody ever signed up for a color run? You know what I'm talking about, color runs? Like, normally you sign up for a color run with friends, and, and, and it's, it's kind of fun. You do this together, and, and they throw these like colorful bombs of powder that go off almost like a cloud, and you, you, you run through it. You kind of feel like a gladiator as you're going through like, yeah. And then you get, you, you know, like it gets on your T-shirt, and your eyebrows come out green, and you get some cool pics at the end. It's kind of like getting to be a big kid. But well, we signed up for one of these a couple of years ago. Man, this is going to be super fun. But then you realize when you show up that the color part is cool, but you still have to run. And they start telling me, like, hey, we got to run a mile and a half. I'm like, what do you mean we got to run a mile and a half? And you know how I feel about running. I'm like, why can't we just have a color sprint, right? Not sprints, but a sprint. Just like run from me. You know, better way. Why don't you just throw the stuff on us? We'll jump around a little bit. I don't want to have to do this. This is a whole lot harder than I thought it was going to be. Well, that's what it is with being a disciple of Jesus. You know that? Being a disciple is not always easy. It's not always comfortable. We don't have this user-friendly, uh, you know, like always fun, shallow, superficial, never have to do anything you don't want to do. Being a disciple is gritty. Being a disciple is hard. It's challenging. And you are going to face opposition. But I want you to know that it is worth it. In fact, can I give you a big idea this morning? The big idea of our text is this. Following Jesus will cost you, but you will not lose your reward. Chapter 6, verse 1. He says this, He went away from there, and He came to His hometown, and His disciples followed Him. 
And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is, what is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the, the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? Take offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. He could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. He went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve, began to send them out two by two. And he gave them authority over the unclean spirits and he charged them uh, to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So They went out. They proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. I want to give you a couple of warnings that come with a really great promise. Alright, so if you're taking notes, note this. Expect to be rejected. Expect to be rejected. But trust God to work. You can expect to be rejected because we see Jesus being rejected. Right? Verse 1 gives us this, this setting. Uh, it says he went away from there. So we've been spending a lot of time at the Sea of Galilee, and now we're getting a change in scenery. But it's not just a change in location. It's actually kind of a change in tone because we've just come off of three major episodes where Jesus was proving his power and his authority. And it was really cool because we're seeing lives change, people responding to him in faith. But, but now in chapter 6, we're seeing the responses like confusion and rejection because he comes to his hometown. Now, Jesus' hometown is not somewhere you're really proud of, okay? It's not like D.C. where people like want to come here and check it out. Nazareth was Jesus' hometown, about 25 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee. It's not a tourist destination, okay? There's no visitor center. There's no booklets, uh, no sightseeing maps. There's no like what to do when you're visiting Nazareth. None of that because it's super boring. Nobody wants to come here. Well, when Jesus comes home, he shows up in the synagogue and he starts to teaching. Teaching when, when many heard him, it says they were astonished. That, that word astonished means to be struck in the mind. In fact, I've got a, an emoji that will help you understand exactly what this word means. That's what's going on here when they hear this. Like, Mind blown. I think Apple dug deep in their Greek etymology to figure out that translation. That's what's happening when the people hear Jesus. Like They haven't heard this guy in a long time, and the minute he opens his mouth, they're like, oh, this is incredible. And it almost sounds like a good thing, except then they start asking these questions. They say, where did this man? Now, that's kind of weird, okay? It's weird that they call him this man, uh, because he's from your little podunk town where everybody knows everybody. You know his name. Why are you calling him this man? That's weird. Why does, where does this man uh, get these things? And, and, and what is this wisdom given to him? How are these mighty works done by his hand? Listen, they're recognizing greatness. Like, we, we, we don't usually see this kind of thing in little old Nazareth. It's a little podunk town where nothing ever happens. 
I grew up in one of those little towns. I grew up in a place called West Liberty, Ohio. You've never been there. There's good reason for that. Uh, for us, um, it, we, we, we were surrounded by the cornfields. We had like three traffic lights and, and, and entertainment, excitement for us was like the yearly Labor Day parade where we would all get out our little lawn chairs and we'd come and sit in our front yard and, 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 and there would be a parade. And, and we'd have the, the high school band would go by and then we would have about 200 plus tractors that would go by. You just watch. Awesome. Fantastic. Super entertaining. Now, it was, honestly, it was a really great place to grow up, but I'm telling you that because it was not the center of culture and academia. That's Nazareth. So when Jesus shows up and, and they're hearing his teaching, and it's so impressive that it sounds like somebody who went off to Harvard, they're, they're, they're looking at this and, and all of his miracles, and they're just like blown away. They're like, well, gum, you believe that? Like, I never thought he'd amount to anything. That's, maybe that's not exactly the accent they had, but that's the feeling that they have in this moment. And they start asking these questions. Verse 3, they say, is, is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And we know his brothers and his sisters are here with us. This is basically an insult. Like, man, he's just a carpenter, and that's respectable enough. But now he shows up, and he's acting like he's some big shot rabbi. And he's, got, he's forgotten his roots. I mean, we know his family. We know his mama. We know where he's from. Who does he think he's better than us? You know, like, who, who does he think he is? And he goes off, and, you know, he's got some better experiences than us, and now he's too good for us. And so the text says that they took offense at him. That, that word's where we get our word, scandalous. This guy's not legit. We don't have to listen to this. It's actually a metaphor. It means to, to put a, a stumbling block or, or, or uh, to, to trip up. It's because these people don't, they don't trust. They don't believe in God. They, uh, you know, they follow the law, but they don't believe in their Messiah. And so they're spiritually blind. And so because they're spiritually blind, they can be staring at Jesus, the truth, the light of the world, who's standing right in front of them, and it's like they literally just kind of like trip over it. They can't take it. That's what happens when you preach the gospel to unbelievers. Do you know that? I don't know if you've experienced this, but, but you're trying. I know you're trying to share the gospel. I know that you're trying to connect with people. There's somebody here that you're trying to talk to, Christ, to them about Christ. But, but the problem is you can't just reason them into believing. Do you know that? It's right for you to try to answer their questions and to be able to converse with them, but you can't just reason somebody into believing because it's not just an intellectual problem. It's a hard heart problem. Which means you also can't wow them into believing either. And so I know that you're trying to share the gospel, but can I just remind you, as you're doing that, it is not your job to save them. It's not your job to do that. God has to be the one who opens their minds and their hearts to believe. Otherwise, they're going to reject Christ. And so verse 4 is just kind of dripping with irony here. Because the people who should know him don't. This is a prophet, not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Even his own household. This is the only time that Jesus refers to himself in the book of Mark as a, as a prophet. Somebody who speaks, declares the word of the Lord. And honestly, prophets, I mean, somebody who declares the word of the Lord. But the problem is when he shows up, he comes home, there's no parade. There's no banners. No little old ladies waiting to pinch his cheek and tell him how proud they are of what, he, what he's become. They want nothing to do with him. They completely reject him. Even his family, even his brothers and his sisters, the people that he grew up with. I don't want to listen to this guy. 
So verse 5 tells us that he could do no mighty work there. That doesn't mean that he lost power. Okay, It's not as though like people's faith gives Jesus his power. Like, like Peter Pan needs fairy dust in order to fly, or Tinkerbell needs you to believe in fairies in order for her to even survive. Because it's not the way it works with Jesus. He, he has power, he, and he still has the ability. But because of their lack of faith, and because they're rejecting him, they are forfeiting the opportunity to hear him and to watch him work. So Jesus marvels at this faith. He's like, wow, really? Really, guys? I'm not sure that, that Jesus is like shocked because he never saw it coming. I mean, we, Jesus knows the condition of the human heart. But there might be something to be said for how astounding and appalling and how utterly stupid it is for sinners to be staring the truth in the face but still reject it when the one who made us, the one who knows, marvels at our unbelief. Really? You're going to reject the only one who can save you? How do you think that's going to work out? It's just kind of the stupidity of sin, isn't it? But then Mark moves pretty quickly. And he moves on to the mission of the disciples. And, and, I, and I want to tell you that I think the order of events here is on purpose. Because by telling us about the disciples' mission right after telling us about Jesus' rejection, it's a reminder to us that if they did this to Jesus, what do you think they're going to do to us? If this is how they respond to the Son of God while He's declaring truth, then we can expect the same kind of treatment when we share the Gospel with unbelievers. So He sends them out, verse 7. He calls the twelve and He began to send them out. That's actually a fulfillment of what we saw a few weeks ago in chapter 3. I've got it for you on the screen because I know that you may not have remembered this, but chapter 3, verse 14 and 15, uh, Jesus appointed the twelve whom He also named apostles so that they might be with Him and He might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So this is just a fulfillment of this. This was the plan for the disciples all along. And so they've been in training essentially. They've been getting uh, uh, private instruction and they've been witnessing the miracles and they've been learning from him. They've been listening to the game plan and, and they've been watching film and now it's game time. Or at least he's sending them out to play a scrimmage, right? Uh, it's time for them to start putting these things into practice and he sends them out two by two so you got a buddy system so that you're not alone, okay? But he's basically sending them on a short-term missions trip. And I know that because next week we're going to pick up in verse 30. We're going to see in verse 30 that they actually come back. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So we know that this isn't the, like the last time he's like, I'm done with you guys, get out of here. They've not graduated, but what he's telling them is, it's time for you to take some of the things that you've seen me do and you go do it yourselves. One commentator pointed out that this seems a bit premature. Anybody else feel that it's possible that these guys aren't quite ready for this? Anybody else feel that? Like, Jesus, are you sure? Like, now? Now's the time? Like, do you, do you think? Like, I'm honestly, like, what evidence have we seen so far in the book of Mark that would lead you to believe that these guys are up to the challenge? Or that these guys are prepared for this? We haven't had a lot of indication so far that these guys are A-level students ready for an internship yet. In fact, like the last time they opened up their mouths was back in chapter 4. They were freaking out about the storm. They thought they were going to die. Remember that? And they were wondering if Jesus even cares for them. And then besides that, they're basically just walking behind Jesus, watching him 
do all of the work. And so I don't know, in this moment, I'm kind of thinking like, Jesus, are, are you sure about this? Like, it seems a little too early to be pushing them out of the nest and seeing if they can fly. Now, I know some of you have felt this. Uh, we, we, we have a reminder. We end our service every week. Uh, we, we, we have a reminder that we're going out to fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples, right? We say, church isn't over. Let's go be the church. Let's go be bold witnesses for Jesus Christ. And I know that some of you are sitting there and you hear that and you're thinking, you're like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know that I'm really ready. Like, I think I need to be coming a little bit longer before I'm ready for that. I mean, I didn't go to Bible school, so I don't have all of the answers. And, and I know it's some, something I'm supposed to be doing, but I don't really have any experience, and I don't really know how to close the deal. In fact, I don't even know how to start the conversation. And if I do start the conversation, they ask me some questions. Like, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to answer those things. And so, so we're just kind of holding back. But listen, listen, I love that Jesus is pushing them out there because he's helping us to see there's no waiting period. There's no requirements that you have to meet before you're ready to go share your faith. What he's doing is he's saying, as soon as you trust in Jesus for salvation, you're sending, he's sending you out. And so what he wants us to do is to live now like we've been sent here. Because the day you trust Jesus for salvation, you become a missionary for him. And I know that many of you, you're, you're, like, that's not super encouraging because you're like, I don't, I don't know that I'm qualified. I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to do it. Well, uh, James Edwards has said it this way. The fulfillment of the Word of God depends not on the perfection or the merit of the missionaries, but on the authoritative call and equipping of Jesus. God is in the business of sending us out long before we're ever ready. So he's just kind of taking that excuse away for us. And what he's doing is he's really showing us we're going to have to trust that God is going to do the work. He is entrusting his mission to you knowing that you are going to have to trust him to do the work. So, so, so Jesus pushes the disciples out there. Like, get out there and learn to, learn to trust them. But then look at it. He, he purposely keeps their packing list light. Look, look, notice in verse 8 and 9. Uh, what, what they get to take. Actually, notice what they don't get to take. He, he won't let them take all the necessary preparations. You don't get a suitcase. There's no survival kit. You don't get a backpack. Like, you, you don't even get some food. You don't get a month. You can't even pack some trail mix or an emergency credit card. I mean, what in the world are we going to do when we get out there? And, and well, I'll tell you what we're going to have to do. We have to trust the Lord. Look at what he provides here. He says, you get to take a staff. It's kind of assumed that you get a belt. Thank you for that. You wear a belt, but no money. I love to like put anything, not a utility belt. And just throw that around your clothes. You get some sandals and you get a tunic. Not two, one. That's all you get. I don't know if you can kind of picture that in your head. But that is reminiscent of the children of Israel when they were coming out in the Exodus out of Egypt. But I want to show this to you. I want you to see this because I've got it for you on the screen. Here's what God told them they were supposed to wear when they were eating the Passover meal before He led them out of slavery. Exodus chapter 12, here's what He said. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened. You got your belt. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. 
and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So he did that on purpose while they're eating the meal. Have you ever done this where you're like in breakfast? I know that like you, you, you don't even have time to like put my bowl of cereal on the table and like sit down. I'm just going to eat standing up because I got to go. I got to get out the door. That's what he was doing for them. This was a visual reminder of, of urgency and, and it was supposed to be an encouragement for them because what he's really trying to say is, hey guys, we're not hanging out here anymore. Eat fast. God's about ready to do something. And so when the disciples, just like the Israelites, following God out into the unknown, Jesus' disciples now have to, man, we're completely dependent on him to work. He's going to have to do this. He's going to have to do the work as we go out on mission. But get ready, because God's about to do something. We're going to have to learn to trust him. In fact, verse 10 says, whenever you enter a house, I want you to stay there. It's like first century Airbnb going on. And it's, honestly, it was another reminder for them. We're dependent on God. Like, we need some hospitality so we can, you know, like, eat, sleep. Simple stuff like that. We're going to have to trust him. But then look at what he says in verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against you. That's not super encouraging. It's almost like Jesus like expecting them to have people that don't want to listen. It's like a boost of confidence right there, right? He's essentially spent more time telling them what not to take and what to do when it doesn't go well. What that tells me is that Jesus is not setting up a controlled simulator where they get to practice the Great Commission on rookie mode to get some easy wins in a safe environment. That's not what's going on. In fact, verse 7 says that he was giving them authority over the unclean spirits. Jesus is purposefully sending them out. And man, we don't feel like they're ready, but hey, he is sending them out into spiritual warfare. Man, this is going to get intense. So discipleship is dangerous. It's not easy. It's going to cost you. And once you get out there, you're going to realize there's a whole lot of people that don't want to hear what you have to say. They, they, they're going to reject you. Expect it. if they rejected Jesus, then what do you think they're going to do to you? And is this not one of the biggest reasons we keep our mouth shut instead of telling other people about Jesus? Like I fear if I do try to start the conversation or steer it in that direction that they're going to shoot me down. The fear of rejection becomes one of the biggest obstacles for us really sharing our faith. I don't know if this is encouraging to you, but Jesus is saying it's not a what if, it's a when and how often you're going to experience rejection. I was thinking about two of the most popular forms of rejection that we face. Probably disinterest, disagreement. Think about that. Like when, when I'm afraid to open up my mouth and start talking to somebody who's completely disinterested. You know the kind of people like they've got their thing, their thing's working okay, don't need you, don't need that, not interested at all. And so, so like I don't even know where to start with those people. Because you, you fear that it will make you look stupid when they mock or dismiss the very thing that is so valuable to you. Like, I, Think about that. Jesus is your everything. He is your world. He is so great. And you want people to be as excited about him as you are. But they're going to look at that and they'll be like, eh, okay, not all that. Not for me. And so 
they don't think it's cool. I'm just going to keep my mouth shut. I'm not going to talk about it. It's just really just fear of man. I was thinking about Star Wars. Like, I love Star Wars. I'm a nerd, okay? When I want to go see the new Star Wars, I want to go see the new Star Wars on opening night. Because that's when all the other nerds come out to play. And, we, and it's like this socially acceptable circle of freaks. And, and we're okay with that. But I don't want to drop into normal conversation with you some fan theories about, you know, who dropped Ray off on the planet Jakku or who's, you know, what, what happened to Luke's lightsaber. Because I'm not sure how you feel about this yet. And I don't, want to, like, I don't want you to think that I'm some real big freak. I want you to think that I'm cool, that I'm normal. I don't know if you think that's cool or not, so I'm just going to shut up. I care about your opinion. We do that with Jesus, don't we? Like, I, I want to I talk about it, but I don't want to talk about him too much because I don't want you to think that I'm, uh, you know, I'm some psycho fanatic or some ultra-conservative religious fuddy-duddy. I want you to think I'm, I'm normal. I'm cool. But really, I care more about your opinion than I care about what Christ has called me to do. That's actually called the fear of man, not the fear of God. And, and I know that it is encouraging to have people that agree. It's, it's, it's fun to feel like you're sitting at the cool kid's table. But we don't need their affirmation, okay? The gospel is true and Jesus is glorious whether people believe in him or not. And the truth ought to motivate us to, to boldly share what they need to hear and not shrink back in fear for what they might think of me. So We're going to have to trust the Lord knowing that the gospel is going to cost you. And then there's all the other people that you're afraid to get into it with somebody who's going to disagree, somebody that's going to fight, somebody that's going to argue. You know the types, the people that are going to, they're, they're, they're going to tell you that what you're believing is wrong, that, that, that this is only just a, a, a crutch for the unintelligent, but that scholars and, and scientists have already disproven the Bible, so you're an idiot for believing it. And you're afraid that they're going to show you some piece of evidence or, or, or bring up some philosophical question that I can't answer, and then I'm going to look dumb, and I really don't want to look dumb in front of people, and then kind of back to fear of man there. But, but here's the deal. It's, it's right for us to be able to think through these things, to reason and to give answers. And we can have confidence that our faith is reasonable. And the, the Bible has satisfied the curiosity and the scrutiny of some of the greatest minds in the history of the world. But yes, they're going to argue. Yes, it is going to cost you. They're not going to believe it. They're going to reject you. But remember, when they're rejecting you, who are they really rejecting? Rejecting Christ. And so he says, verse 11, when that happens, when they don't want to listen to you, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against your parents. It's very It's ought to move our hearts with love and compassion here. They're going to have to deal with Christ. Christ is going to be rejected. But that's not the end. Look, look at what happens, verse 12, verse 13. They're proclaiming people should repent. They're casting out demons. They're annoying. That's pretty crazy, right? People are getting healed by that. Like Jesus is working through them. God is working through his disciples. What he's saying is, don't lose heart. Yes, it's going to be hard. Yes, they're going to reject you, but you will not lose in the end. And don't forget uh, the, the stories that we just heard in chapter 5. We had, we had three different people. We had the, the guy who was possessed by demons. We had the bleeding woman. We had Jairus whose daughter was healed. All of these people, their lives were transformed by their faith in Jesus. God can do it, and he is doing the work. Do you believe that? 
Church, God is at work even here. In fact, I want to tell you a little story. It's actually two stories in one. It's the story of what God has been doing in Wayne and Mindy Scheidel's life. And uh, they gave me permission. They told me I was allowed to share this. In fact, we uh, shared it on a blog on our 100 Stories page on our website. You can go check it out. But it's been incredible to hear what God has been doing even in their life recently. They they moved here um, about a year and a half ago uh, because the army moved them in. And it just so happens that Wayne had an old high school buddy. Mark Wessenberg also grew up in Wisconsin. And it just so happened that they both kind of moved to the same area uh, pretty close by. And so Mark and Joyce started inviting Wayne and Mindy to come to harvest. And, and honestly, come to harvest, and, and, and it was not what they had grown up with. This was a little bit different, okay? But they were feeling moved by the worship. And of course, like, we love you. This is an awesome family. And so they felt that, and they were connecting, and they started to understand what the Bible was saying. And what they were hearing didn't sound like what they had grown up being taught. They'd been taught that you need to be a good person in order to go to heaven. I remember last fall, Mindy emailed me. She was wrestling with these things and wanted to know, like, what, what, like I, don't, I, I want to know more. And so she came and she heard the gospel. And she got it. God worked in her heart. She started realizing that she'd been trusting in herself. She'd been basically trying to earn her own salvation. She came to understand that Jesus has already paid for it. In that moment, God saved her. She understood her need for Christ. She, they started attending the Murphy's small group. She started growing. We were praying. And then just two weeks ago, Wayne heard the gospel again. God saved him. Amen? I tell you that, here's, here's the, the, the hard part in this is, now, unfortunately for us, the military's moving them back out in just a couple weeks. We only got a couple weeks left of them. And I was talking with Wayne about this and and honestly, I, I love his perspective on it because he sees this, that God is actually sending them out strategically. To take what they've learned here and to go live on mission there. I want you to hear this. I want you to be able to connect with it. We're celebrating what God is doing. This is just a part of the 100 stories of lives transformed by his glory and mobilized for his mission. And I hate it. I got to tell you, I don't want them to leave. But, but listen, we are done just being sad as a church. We're going to start embracing God's strategy to send his people out. And I want you to live that way now. You don't have to wait to be sent away from here. So, 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 so whether you grew up here, you plan to stay, or maybe you're hoping to move in a year. Now, live now like you are sent here. And don't expect it to be easy. You can expect that you are going to be rejected, but we're going to trust that God is working. And I wanted to tell you that story because church, he is at work. He's doing it. We can trust him. I'm going to read on here. I'm going to finish by reading this awful story that comes next. And we're not going to get buried in the details because honestly, I think this story is making one big point for us. Okay? So I want you to see this. Uh, Verse 14, Mark continues and tells us that King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That's why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. Others said, he is a, a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when 
Herod heard of it. He said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For uh, it was Herod, by the way, this is now like some big massive parentheses to tell you the backstory of why he said that. Verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. She came in immediately with haste to the king and asked for him. I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. King was exceedingly sorry. Because of his oaths and his, and his guests, that's bad in front of them. Because of them, he did not want to break his word to her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it. another warning for us. Expect to be persecuted. Jesus shot down John, or Mark does this on purpose. He's been trying to answer that question, like, who, who is Jesus and what does it mean to be his disciple? And so, so, so reading this gruesome and unsettling story right after hearing about the disciples' mission is yet another reminder for us. Following Jesus is going to cost you. There's only two stories in the book of Mark that are not about Jesus. Both of them are about John the Baptist. In fact, the first one we saw in chapter 1, uh, which left off with John being arrested. Now he's coming back in chapter 6 and letting you know the end of the story, what happened to John. And both of these stories actually set the scene and, and foreshadow Jesus' ministry. Uh, honestly, I, I, I'm impressed by John here. John is just standing up for what's right. And he has no fear of speaking the truth, even uh, though it's pretty dangerous to confront people uh, who are in power and, and, and have position, right? Like positions of power. Like, you don't do that. But, but he stands up and he's like, no, you can't sleep with and steal your brother's wife. Besides being gross, that's wrong. You can't do that. And so Herodias is kind of ticked off at him for saying that. And, and so she's holding a grudge. But, but Herod, he's kind of waffling back and forth. He wants to hear John. He wants to hear what he has to say. But he also wants his sin. And in the end, he wants his sin more. So there's this birthday party. The text almost gives us this indication that it's like an opportune time. Like Herodias gets her chance to take John out. And, and, and she has this sick and twisted parenting scheme. Like, like who does this? This is awful. What mother would do this? But she sends her daughter in to dance 
in front of all of Herod's buddies. And for sure, this is an erotic dance, okay? The text doesn't give us details, for which I'm glad. But it's meant to inflame lusts, and it does. I mean, you could just, they're probably all hammered, and these guys are all ogling her, and, and you got this disgusting locker room talk going on. This is the part in the DVD, we just like skip this scene altogether. We don't need to watch this. But then Herod says that he's going to give her whatever she wants. Up to half of my kingdom. He's got to talk big in front of the guys, right? You can just see Herodias uh, around the corner just lurking there with this devious smile. She knew this was going to happen. She knew she was going to get him. She wants John's head, literally. This is cold, calculated murder. All John has done is just declare the word of God. This is injustice. This is sick. It's disturbing. And, and you can see that innocence and any, any faithful witness to the commands of God have little chance of escaping any form of persecution when this kind of lust and, and immorality and hatred and, and, and bitterness and foolishness and, and, and devious manipulation and the fear of man hold positions of power. Because we look at what, what, what Herod does. It's just pathetic capitulation. He's like, well, I don't want to look bad in front of my guests. Now i got to do it. That's what happens when you fear man instead of fearing God. But it's a reminder for us that if you are going to take a stand for Christ, then you are going to have people that hate you and that want to hurt you. And this story impresses on us the cost of following Jesus. He's looking for serious discipleship. He's not looking for people that are going to quit and leave when, I don't know, the church just, it's not as fun for my kids anymore. Or when I don't feel like I'm really connecting with people and I tried that small group, but they're, they're kind of weird and they're not in my stage of life and I don't really want to hang out with those kind of people anyway. Or man, it's just getting too hard for me to get out of bed on Sunday mornings anymore. Or, or, or I don't want to give up my free time. I don't want to give up my lifestyle, let alone the kind of people that would give up when someone actually threatens us for trying to tell somebody about Jesus. He is looking for disciples who know it's coming, but we're committed and we know that it's going to cost. But it doesn't matter if we face rejection. It doesn't matter if we face persecution. We want to be on mission for Jesus and we believe that it is worth every cost to follow him. That's what he's looking for. But you tell me, did John the Baptist lose? Did he lose? I mean, yes, he lost his life, but did he lose? And Jesus said that, Whoever would lose his life for my sake will find it. So you can expect to be persecuted, but you can trust God to save. Because this story actually, what, 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 the, the death of John the Baptist then foreshadows, it becomes a picture for us of Christ's death. Because both stories have some similar things going on. We see injustice from a political ruler that is provoked by hatred of sinners. And it's completely undeserved. But because Jesus willingly submitted and they put him to death on that cross, now anybody who believes in him is forgiven and saved from the wrath of God. And he tells them, he gives us his guarantee that we will live with him. We will have eternal life. We get to live with God for all of eternity. And so he's looking for disciples now who would say, what is this life to me? My life belongs to Christ. I give it all to follow him, no matter the cost. I want to follow Christ. And church, I don't know what kind of form of persecution that, that we might face around here. I really don't know. I was trying to think about it. I don't know what that is going to look like. But it is my job as your pastor to teach and to preach the authority of God's Word so that you would be prepared for the possible, for the inevitable, 
that you would know that this is coming, that, that following Jesus is going to cost you, but you would know that you will not lose in the end. They can take off your head, but they will not silence the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is a privilege to spend my life for this. It is worth every cost. And we have the confidence that God, is, His kingdom is going to reign. He's going to be faithful to His promise. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the end, do you know? You know? In the end, he wins. So it just kind of like leaves us there with a question. Is following Jesus worth dying? Lord, I pray that you would make us disciples are willing to count the cost. I pray that you would remind us of what you've accomplished for us on the cross and also in your resurrection. That great hope that death is not the end. That the enemy has been defeated. And that in the end, if we will trust in you, we know that we get to live with you for all of eternity. And there's such great hope there for us. So Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be faithful, to be bold witnesses, and to not shrink back in fear. Yes, they're going to reject us. Yes, they might persecute us. But it's worth it to follow you. I pray that you would show us again that you are infinitely greater. I pray that our church would as bold, faithful witnesses. We'll trust you with the fruit. We're asking for it. We want to see you do an incredible work here in North Virginia. We have the confidence that you are building your church. So we hope in that. And we give you praise for what you're accomplishing even in our church. 